All right, listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our podcast will be on the air for approximately 90 minutes. The average number of good takes, barring injury, is four per episode. Checkpoints go up at every 15 minutes. Your program's name is Hit Factory Podcast. Go get it. How was that? Great. (laughs) Thrilling. Thrilling. I'm on the edge of my seat. Riveted. What's up, everyone? Uh, It's Hit Factory. We're back. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And if you haven't guessed already, uh, the topic of today's episode is the 1993 action thriller, The Fugitive, starring Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. Are there really any other movies? Do other movies exist? After watching this one again for the first time in a while... You, one could argue that movies needn't exist anymore. <laughs> uh, it's it's good. It's just everything you want from a film. And it's just one of those things that, you know, as you watch it, you realize like, oh, yeah, like we've kind of forgotten how to do a thriller like this. We've forgotten how to do like a smart grown up thriller. Yeah. Like there are still a couple of them, but I feel like they kind of fall into sort of like niche categories you know they end up being like horror thrillers or i don't know there's just there's not anything like this earnest anymore and like that's the thing that's so much fun about it is that like on paper and as you start to kind of consider it it is a little pulpy like it is a little ridiculous Mm -hmm. but it's played so straight by everyone in it they just like they own their characters harrison ford and tommy lee jones act the shit out of this movie they do yeah it's played really straight by the actors and also the storytelling by davis is so thoughtful and so thorough and done in such a way that doesn't ever slow the momentum of the film um that it's all totally believable when you're immersed in the experience of watching it yeah And then, like, if you sort of reflect afterward, you're like, oh, yeah, like, how could he get away with doing X, Y, and Z? Whatever. But when you're watching it, you're not thinking that because it's, it is, um, it's told, like, practically, tactically, and, uh, and just with a lot of attention to detail. And the writing, I think, is what makes this so propulsive because, you don't I mean the editing is fantastic. Yeah. I mean it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. It's a big team of people responsible for that too. Um the the screenwriters are Jeb Stewart and David Tui, names that uh, I remarked uh upon when I saw them at the beginning of this of this film. I had forgotten that they were involved in it really in any way whatsoever. Um but Jeb Stewart of course with Stephen uh D'Souza wrote uh, Die Hard, and Tui is a, a pretty prominent action screenwriter as well. He wrote the script for G.I. Jane, um, and then, of course, My Beloved Waterworld, <laughs> and is the director for all three of the films in the uh, ongoing saga of one Richard B. Riddick, Vin Diesel's character. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. You do love The Riddick Chronicles. I do love The Riddick Chronicles (laughs) and those movies. Um, So they're on on paper and and credited with the screenwriting. But as I was doing some research, I I understood that uh, Andrew Davis, the director, actually gives a significant amount of credit 
to both Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford and calls them uh, uncredited writers on the script. And you can sense that, you know, there's so much richness and detail to their characters. And I, I think even like anecdotally, Jane Lynch mentioned uh, the experience of working on the movie for, you know, her, her handful of scenes that she has and recalling working with Ford on the day of before they shot on the dialogue because he quote uh, didn't like the way it was on the page Mm -hmm. and you you see all those kind of like textures and nuances like when it's not just somebody like getting a paycheck and like saying the words and saying them effectively but they're actually considering the characters and writing it you get all those like fun little details peppered throughout like pulling one out of a hat the moment after the iconic uh, dam like tunnel chase Mm -hmm when uh, Tommy Lee Jones and the rest of the marshals for like 90 seconds of screen time are getting lost in the damn infrastructure yeah. and like can't find their way out. Like that's not like maybe that's on the page, you know, but, but you have to get the sense that like that banter and the way that they're acting is something that those actors kind of came up with in the moment. Like let's, let's get lost. Let's pretend like we're having a hard time finding our way out of out of the scenario yeah and that's the tactical stuff that i'm talking about too that like keeps you grounded in the action and not necessarily like paying attention to the artifice where you're like yeah okay so harrison ford's character is a couple of steps ahead of them because they got lost getting out of the thing and he just dove off the fuck in front of it (laughs) the writing is really wonderful and i'm the conversation about the writing as it relates to Jones and Ford participating actively in the screenwriting um, is related to a conversation we were having recently about a one Tom Cruise. Yes. Who's in the news lately? Who's right? Because, you know, Top Gun. Saving movies. Um, (laughs) Saving movies. But we were talking about, I was sort of lamenting like how this actor that is like not just a person who is good at the craft finger quotes, Mm -hmm. like good at acting, but also understands like what needs to be on screen and what audiences want. Yeah. Right. There's that like two way street and that, you know, Tom Cruise, we know is a, is a, is a producer. Yes. So he's nominally given that role, but he also just really actively is involved in the movies, even the ones that he doesn't have a producer credit on. And thinking about Jones and Ford as two other actors of that same ilk that are very much like movie stars, yes, but also just like good movie makers, like can make good movies by being in them and by like, actively creating them on the job yes and you know you get the sense with a lot of modern movie making that everything is so uh marketized and everything is so like kind of about the bottom line that there isn't really an opportunity for that level of collaboration on a production anymore right that even like the director is really just sort of like a placeholder kind of like a patsy for the the studio or for like the ultimate vision of things yep and that's like most blockbuster mainstream movie making like certainly there are still uh tours and like smart directors who are collaborating but but it almost feels like kind of a lost art of being like a, a good sort of journeyman director who's very competent can get the job done quickly like 
knows the ins and outs of a production schedule and and you know like working on a set and has these really competent really professional really intelligent actors and lets them just play around you know like gives them the room within the parameters of what needs to be done in order to pull out something that is this good uh you know we're talking more about just the number of people involved in this in this film uh apparently you know Ford's schedule was pretty booked. He was a pretty hot commodity at the beginning of the 90s. Um, and he's 50 in this movie already. Man looks great for a 50-year-old. But uh, they had a really limited window in order to edit the movie once they were finished shooting. So they shot all of this at the beginning of 1993, finished it in mid-May, edited the whole thing in I think about eight, ten weeks to be released in August. They had a team of six editors that put the thing together. Um, that Davis was working with in tandem and collectively on various parts of the movie. And it still feels cohesive. It still feels like a, like a, a complete whole. Um, and all six of those editors ended up getting uh, nominated for an Oscar for this movie. So something worked out. I can't believe they shot it in that compressed a timeline because the movie feels so expansive. Yeah. And yeah. I believe... One person, I can't remember who, when I was reading some reviews, it may have been Ebert, um, said that the film seemed operatic. And it does. It's like, not just because there are these grand shots of, you know, this humongous dam with water um, cascading out of it. And also these like overhead shots of Chicago and the river. And it's all of those things. But it's also that... um, that you know the sort of the scope of the stakes escalates and sort of expands as the movie goes on yeah and the set pieces are fucking fantastic oh yeah and that alone i feel like could just take months to do apparently they shot that train sequence really quickly <laughs> like they That's just bananas they just nailed it and it looks incredible still today it's like I mean, you know, we we lament so many things about like what we've lost in like modern movie making, um, but that that train sequence just feels so heavy and tactile and real. Yeah, and you could tell. I mean, some of it is obviously like just very good, well coordinated special effects. Some of it might be miniature work. You know, a lot of good pyrotechnics. But I, I mean, you genuinely think Ford jumps out of the way of a moving train in a split second and is like being chased while he's still in his leg irons. You know? Yeah. He's really good at just nearly escaping things propelling toward him from behind, <laughs> yes. like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He is. Yeah. This is very similar, actually, to uh, him running from the giant boulder. He has two really good modes. He has running away from big things that are about to hit him and being really concerned about his wife. Yes. Like those are those are two really good like Ford modes that he operates in i would add a 2b to that which is um like if 2a is being really concerned about his wife 2b is being really good at being injured he is really good at that like yeah he's not playing it for melodrama <laughs> like he's not you know wailing and sort of thrashing about but harrison ford is so good at giving that like i'm hurting like in my bones 
feeling yes. <laughs> to his injuries. It's, it's just something injuries. about the way that he like furrows his brow, the way he always kind of looks like he just looks injured most of the time. Yeah, he's um he's you know injured quite a few times in this film, and I'm always just like wincing alongside him because it, he does play it so convincingly, and um and I think you know it's important to note too that. Ford is a really good choice for this character because another thing that grounds a story that, as you said, on paper could be kind of like pulpy and bombastic is that Ford is like pretty, I don't want to say subdued, but he's, he plays it really low to the ground. Yes, absolutely. And you have to be kind of grounded and uh, and a little bit more sort of cold when you are playing a man who is just singularly determined, you know, and motivated by this one purpose. And that determination really is felt by us viewers, I think, because he's not like hollering. The yeah. whole time, except Com- for when he needs to. <laughs> right. He, I mean, the the opening moments of this movie during like the police interrogation when he's doing his, you know, uh, he took everything from me. You know, you th- you think you think I killed my wife. It's it's so good. And it's like some of the best work he's ever done. Overshadowed pretty obviously because Tommy Lee Jones is so bombastic. Like the two of them as foils in this movie are pretty pitch perfect. And of course, Tommy Lee Jones uh, finally gets his his Oscar for this movie in 1993. Um, awards in 94. For a 93 movie. But yeah, I mean, it, as you watch it now with a, a little bit of remove from like whenever it was the last time you caught it on cable or something... Ford is doing a ton of work and a lot of that is in being so generous in the way that he is acting kind of understated. He's communicating a lot without much dialogue. He's by himself for most of this, right? He's trying to sort of like disappear into a lot of the scenes. And so we don't get a lot of those moments where he's, you know, shooting back and forth with somebody and kind of firing off the way that Tommy Lee is and his kind of crew of of U.S. Marshals. It's good work. Yeah, Harrison Ford is the protagonist of this film for all intents and purposes, but he has maybe a quarter of the amount of lines as Tommy Lee Jones does mm-hmm. in this movie. And I found myself thinking about Eyes of Laura Mars and his character in that film, who is also a, a police officer, a detective of mm-hmm. some type, um, and has that same kind of like bravado, but is still also just like highly competent. Right. Um, and he's so good when he's operating in that mode of like, he's got swagger, he's got, you know, some jokes and he's also a man of authority and a man who knows what he's doing and is really good at his job. Yeah. I, you know, he's he's certainly more understated in his earlier work and kind of becomes a little bit more bombastic and has those moments of like kind of dry humor uh, later in his career. You know, this and then followed later in the 90s by Men in Black, of course. Um, I think about how terrific he is in No Country for Old Men. But going backwards, you know, like Eyes of Laura Mars, yes. And then also uh, Rolling Thunder, the John Flynn movie, where he is kind of that same sort of robotic, hyper-competent, like... Uh, armed armed forces kind of guy and uh 
you know, uh, William Devane comes to him and is like, I found, I found the guy who, you know, robbed me and killed my wife and kid. And he just looks at him and says, I'll just go get my bag. Right. Like I'm coming with you. You know, I'm, I'm going to go get my gun. I'm going to go get my shit. I'm going to, I'm going to come and kill these guys with you. Um, but he always, yeah, just has that like really steely, like hyper competence to him that I just love. Um, and he's so good. I mean, he's so magnetic in this, his performance is terrific and he gets a lot of good kind of one-liners. I forget how funny this movie can be. Yes. Um, his interactions with the rest of his, uh, the rest of his crew who are all like great character actors, right? Like Joe Pantoliano's in it. He's excellent. Uh, Daniel Roebuck is in it as well. Who's in literally everything though. I can't ever like place him in anything specific, right. but he's in everything, you know, like I looked up his IMDB and he has like almost 300 credits to his name. <laughs> since he started working in the eighties. Uh, but then like L Scott, uh, Caldwell as well from, uh, ER, you mentioned she has a, a, a handful of, of seasons that she's in that. But yeah, I mean, it, it's just peppered throughout with, it's the Leo pointing meme throughout yes. the entire movie with like totally. good character actors. Like every single frame is full of them. Um, but, you know, sometimes it, it feels a little tedious to get into like the numbers of a movie and talk a little bit about its legacy or whatever. It's not necessary. But this one I feel like is important to talk about a little For bit because sure. it is one of the highest grossing films, like one of the biggest most culturally influential moments of 90s cinema, especially in the first half here, um, you know, makes like what $350 million, something like that off of a, a, a mid budget, like studio movie, tons of Oscar nominations, including best picture that year, yep. which is, you know, another interesting thing. I, I promise I won't keep bringing this into the modern context and being like, Oh, look how much we've, how, how bad it's gotten or whatever. But at the time, I feel like I recall and, and in reading about it, you know, you kind of get the sense that it was one of those movies that people felt was kind of like a sop to like populist movie going, right? Like it's not the high art of the other movies that, that were nominated that year. Schindler's List being the one that ended up winning Best Picture. But when you watch it now, you're like, oh no, like this is this is a good movie. Like this is up there with like that kind of like Hitchcock, like wrongfully accused man cat and mouse game kind of quality movie. Um, and you think of like what a populist pick would be 25 years later, like Black Panther for best picture, you know, and you just realize there's a, a considerably more competent, a considerably better style of movie making that was happening in 1993. Yeah. Matt Zoller sites points out that the other best picture nominees uh, were the piano remains of the day, Schindler's list, all these sort of like, high historical drama right. pictures um and that many people felt like this movie was you know for the plebs who wanted escapism um and i was thinking about this film in relation to some of the other best picture winners that he likened it to matt zoller sites um that are also kind of fun and have a lot going on in them and could argue arguably be escapist yeah. potentially he mentions the sting all about eve rocky annie hall casablanca mm -hmm. and perhaps they are all escapist although i'm not even quite sure what that really is other than just a way for like snobs about films to be like it's not fucking it's not high art whatever yeah um while they may be escapist those films are still ultimately 
very well made. So they're still like embodying that excellence in filmmaking. But being an avenue for escape doesn't mean that you aren't still like tangibly human and that you can't still make a movie that is like psychically stimulating. And I think that's what a lot of those films that Zolderseitz mentions have in common is that they are, you know, a means of escape. Yes, genre movies potentially, but that doesn't make them less meaningful or or less powerful in any way. Mm -hmm. Like you can still be moved by a film, but, you know, that is a thriller, but just moved in a different way. Yeah. And I think that that's like, I'm thankful that we exist, I think, in a in an era of film criticism that understands the the draw of genre filmmaking and why those films are important and, and also perceives them to be artistic endeavors, right? Like, you know, 70s horror that isn't just schlock, but also is like something that's engaging with and considering the the anxieties and paranoias of that era, right? And um, you know, if, if we're getting into a little bit of the analysis of what this movie is in the early 90s, for whatever reasons, there is an interesting conversation to be had, I think, about it as sort of a totem to and an emblematic of white upper class paranoia of like the system failing them, you know, not not uh, that that's untreaded territory, but it is interesting that this movie uh, reckons with that in a very particular kind of context and is about specifically like a very wealthy doctor uh, running from the law because the criminal justice system has has done him wrong. Yeah, I turned to you when we were watching this early on and said, I don't think this movie is like anti-police or like anti-American criminal justice system. But I do think this movie is like questioning institutions and like questioning yeah. the capacity of institutions. Well, and it's almost like a, I mean, it's a, it's a nightmare, right? Where it's like, you believe in these systems and institutions as a well-off, upper middle class, uh, successful American. But what what if they were actually evil? What if they treated you like they treat other people? Yeah. What if the criminal justice system treated you like you were black? <laughs> yeah. It, 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 you know, there. I mean, there is kind of a, a joke, like a bit about that, right? That a lot of like legal thrillers and like cop thrillers are really just about like what if the criminal justice system treated a white person the way it treats a black person every day. Totally. Um, and it, you know, like as I was watching this, like at first I, I, I was considering that and thought like, oh, this film doesn't really ever reckon with race in any way. Um, but it is interesting the ways in which it does and who it chooses to like populate the movie with that, that is a person of color. Um, you've, you've got, as I already mentioned, um, L Scott Caldwell, who is a black woman. She's one of the U S marshals, but really like, Throughout the rest of the film, the only the only people of color you see are Copeland, the black uh, fugitive who gets away at the same time as Harrison Ford does, um, who is promptly just like domed in the head after he takes one of the, the marshals hostage when they come to arrest him. Um, you also get Desmondo, right? The Latino janitor who Ford 
uh, impersonates in order to get into the hospital to get the the records of all the people with uh, prosthetics. Mm-hmm. And then one of the only other ones I can really think of immediately is Bones, the lab technician. Yep. And I did find interesting those last two examples. One, because in order to disappear and hide in plain sight, it's interesting that Ford decides to occupy the presence of uh, somebody who is both working class and also Latino, right? Like somebody who uh, is otherwise invisible to the people who are operating within the hospital. And then with Bones too, you know, it's it's um, juxtaposed with Tommy Lee Jones and Joe Pantoliano questioning uh, Jerome Crabbe's character, Nichols, the doctor, right? And they ask him point blank if he can identify these men in this photo. Um, and one of them he clearly can. We know this at this point in the movie. He says no. They don't bother to question him. They let him go. With Bones, he kind of lets down his guard a little bit and and sort of fumbles a question that he's asked by the marshals. But they directly say to him, Mr. Roosevelt, I think you're lying to us. Yes. Uh, which they never do to Nichols or to anyone of higher status. And I, I just think it's interesting, you know, for whatever reason that exists, that the movie does have those moments where you see the ways in which law enforcement and the criminal justice system treats these two groups in society differently yeah there's also a scene when they're trying to figure out why harrison ford's character would come back to chicago and go to the hospital where he used to work right um and uh a man who is missing an arm a black man who's missing an arm passes them and they go oh and they realize like he's there because he's trying to figure out who this one-armed assailant is um and they follow this, this you know, otherwise stranger, um, this uh, black man who's missing an arm. And they're like incredibly menacing and they yeah. aren't like telling him what they're doing. And they're like following too close. They're and following like... too close and they're like <laughs> right behind him when he walks into a room. It's, it's a perfect moment of like cop shit. You yes. know what I mean? Like it, if you've ever had an experience with a cop, even like off duty, like just the way that they... Uh, act like with like that aroused suspicion about everything they're like looking in corners of places that like they're not welcome in like it's it's perfect cop shit but they didn't do that with anyone else in the movie and it's again like i don't know why it's there um but it's certainly not inaccurate yeah i mean you would you would hope that at the very least it's not one of those things that's like uh reflective of the biases of the director or the screenwriters or anything and that it's actually the actors and the, the performers and the director deciding this feels more realistic because this is how these scenarios would actually play out. Um, who knows? But again, like the movie is so full of little details and nuances and just like brimming with, you know, those little, those little like breadcrumbs and moments throughout that I like to believe that part of that is intentional. Walter, this is Richard. Richard, Jesus. Why did you run? Running only makes you look guilty. I wasn't worried about appearances, Walter. Tell me where you are so I can come meet you and you can turn yourself in. I'm not going to turn myself in. I need help. I need money. Richard, you're asking me to harbor an aid a convicted felon. I can't help you that way. My advice both as your friend and legal counsel is for you to give yourself up. Now, tell me, where are you? St. Louis. All right, give me an address and I'll get there as soon as I can. 
Raymond. So he showed up not dead yet. Let that be a lesson to you boys and girls. Don't ever argue with the big dog. Big dog is always right. <laughs> yeah, you've been right before. <laughs> All right. Walter, this is Richard. Richard? Jesus. Why did you run? Running, running makes you look guilty. I wasn't worried about appearances, Walter. Tell me where you are so I can come meet you and you can turn yourself in. I'm not gonna turn myself in. I need help, I need money. I might be crazy, but that train sounds like an L. St. Louis doesn't have an elevated train. How do you know it's an elevated train? You know, I think he's right. I lived under an L for 20 years. No, well then you can explain the difference in the sound of an elevated train as opposed to a train that's running along the ground. You must have ears like an eagle. Play that back. I want to hear the sound of an elevated train. All right, wait a minute. Now, what cities have L's? Uh, New York's got an L. Chile. We do. We got an L. Milwaukee's got an L. Hold it right there where the lawyer says that he sounds guilty. There's bells in the background. There's a guy on a PA. I want to drop everything but the guy on the PA. Can you do that? Yeah, I'll try it. Hold on, Sam. Walter, this is Richard. Richard? Jesus. Yeah, right there. Why did you run? Running, running, What's he saying? Sound like next uh, stop. Sound like next stop. Do that again. Why did you run? Running, running makes you look guilty. Next stop. Merchandise Mart. Son of a bitch, our boy came home. That bell, that bell is the bell on the Well Street Bridge. It's six blocks away. I knew that was an elevated train. Oh, yeah, big dog, you're never wrong. Okay. I'm going to call the CPD. This is his Chicago fire. Excellent. Andiamo, bambini. Sammy. Yeah. When I die, I want to come back just like you. No, you mean happy and handsome? On the matter of this kind of being a nightmare situation for upper middle class white people, particularly of not just, you know, uh, strong financial status, but also social status as a doctor, right? Like they mentioned several times, he's like incredibly educated. He went to XYZ schools. Um, and, and I think it's, I think it's kind of cool to see the ways that I don't want to say class resentment shows up from the marshals, but that, but that his status as a doctor and as a man of like certain capital mm -hmm. is remarked on quite purposefully several times in the movie. Yes. The very first one is when Tommy Lee Jones realizes they've got a fugitive on the run and he spouts off that beautiful soliloquy, whatever you I, want to call it. Right. Um, where he's running down the the tactics for what they need to do to set up a perimeter and and uh, and get everything in place to start hunting this guy. He ends it with our fugitive's name is Doctor Richard Kimball. And he says it with such venom. Yes, and it's, it's perfect. Yeah, he's like very incensed, very hostile about that title. And there are so many moments in the movie where someone says, "Oh, but he's a doctor." Oh, but he's he went to X, Y, and Z school. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like, on the one hand, this sort of like implausibility of someone with this title and this status and this wealth committing a crime like this, but also at the same time, like some disdain, like some resentment on the part of the police officers and the marshals um, who are hunting this man. And it's... It's those details, too, if we're talking about details that just make the film that much more rich. 
Um, and they don't really do anything with it. There's not like, you know, some grand speech where Tommy Lee Jones is like, I never got to go to medical school yeah. because my dad was a butcher and <laughs> whatever. Right. The like, closest they come is when he's reading the pharmaceutical uh, pamphlet for for the, you know, kind of uh, specter of the bad guy that uh, that Nichols is is working for. And he says, like. I got into the wrong profession. He said I, sh- I should have been a doctor. Should have been a doctor. <laughs> like they they made seventeen and a half billion dollars last year. Yep. <laughs> and he says I don't even remember what the exact word is, but he says something like they're horrific or it's it's horrendous or something like that about the company. He calls them a monster. Yeah, monstrous, right? That's what it is. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, this film pretty simply is about a wrongly accused man, right? But it ends up escalating into this really thrilling exploration of sort of like big pharma and like the ways that corporations more broadly, I think, are out to make money and not necessarily like have consumers health and safety in mind and the movie isn't about that but it also doesn't shy away from like those themes sort of being there for us to observe and ponder yeah and big pharma always makes a good bad guy like you know if you're if you're gonna do any sort of like action thriller you you can't really go wrong with like corporate malfeasance Right. Uh, I'm thinking of Dark Waters too. Dark Water. I think of Michael Clayton mm-hmm. as well. You know the the agribusiness, but yep. uh, but it, it's just fun. And and you know, I guess there's the argument that you could make that like it doesn't quite cohere with the rest of the movie. But I actually think that the way that it's presented actually makes the movie stronger and allows it to get off like it just hit the ground running in a way that a lot of thrillers don't. And I I, I mentioned this to you when we were watching when we got to that kind of like third act when you start to kind of put the puzzle pieces together with with uh, Ford that it's not like a lot of other thrillers in that there is no way for you to figure out the plot before they do because you're denied crucial information until the third act. Like you don't even know the name of the pharmaceutical company. You don't know that he was even... Uh, operating on patients who had been taking this uh, this trial drug until like the last 30, 40 minutes of the film. But because of that, you know, those pieces are introduced as flashbacks throughout. So the ostensible like first act of any other thriller in which he's at the party and uh, he comes home and he's attacked and he finds his wife dead and the trial happens, all that stuff is happening sort of as we're already into what would be structurally the second act, right? Like we're already kind of seeing him uh, being tried, being convicted, being thrown on the bus. And the movie in the first 10 minutes opens with, you know, the the shiv and, and the, the bus crash and then the train explosion. So you get off on this journey a lot faster than you otherwise would. And the information is just kind of peppered throughout to help you piece it together at the same rate. But it also keeps it at a distance so that for the first what, 90 minutes of the movie, you just get to enjoy the cat and mouse game. And that's what you're there for, ultimately, and it's blast. The film bounces back and forth between the past and the present throughout the entirety of the film. I mean, even Mm. in the opening sort of interrogation scene, he's flashing back to the night. And it's one of the ways the film does 
exposition so well, and as I mentioned at the top of the conversation, never slows its momentum. Um, and this sort of like bouncing back and forth between past and present, it not only keeps sort of the pace and the propulsion of the movie going and withholds valuable information until, you know, the time that it makes sort of the most sense for us to find it out and keeps us on the edge of our seat. But it also serves to make the escalation that happens in the third act, I think, that much more potent because it then becomes about something different. Yeah. And yet we're still invested because we've been with these characters the entire film. Um, and that is just like, that's beautiful writing. That's beautiful directing. It's, it's really good editing. Yes. Um, and really good storytelling. There's, you know, the flashbacks, which give us exposition. There's also exposition delivered through the banter between the marshals which otherwise would have to be explained in some like clunky conversation between two fuckheads or whatever. <laughs> and instead, we're getting bits and pieces of evidence and learning more about what's happened um, and where, you know, Richard has been and maybe going as the marshals are. So it really does like heighten the experience of watching the film because you are on the edge of your seat. And it also, you know, once again, makes you kind of question how much of that is on the page and how much of that is thanks to the massive editing team that the movie had. Like, I, I wonder if the version of this movie that's scripted starts with the first act with the party and the attack and they realized it wasn't working and trimmed it down to it's like two hour and 10 minute running time and put those flashbacks throughout like there's there's indications visually that a lot of those things are shot specifically as flashbacks but there's also elements of those opening scenes that are kind of done in black and white and like done with like sort of like color gels and things that seem like they're, they've been kind of marked in post that makes me wonder if there was a more extended opening act initially in this movie that was trimmed down and edited as flashbacks throughout yeah Celia Ward, for example, is, you know, build third, I think. Yeah. And she's in the movie for a grand total of two minutes, if that. They do that with uh, both of the female, like the, the big uh, actress names in this movie. Because Julianne Moore, I think, is is credited like fourth or fifth in here as well. And is in the movie for all of five minutes. My point with Celia is that she's in the whole movie, though. Yes. She is right. literally in the opening frames of the film right up to the very end because of these flashbacks so yeah she's in two minutes but she really peppers you know the whole story her her the image of her and how terrorized Harrison Ford's character is by um his grief uh that stays with him the whole movie and so Sheila is in the the whole film. Yeah, I realized how how much of an impact she makes, not just because she's like gorgeous and just like, you know, uh, just a, a presence, but because she's with you throughout the entire movie and she only appears in flashbacks. By the time the movie opens, she is already dead and like in a bag. Um, yeah, and, and she she really does a lot with the time that she's given in the movie. Another testament to Harrison Ford's acting chops that I think is related to this this thing we're talking about, which is just just how thrillingly paced um, the movie is and how how well they handle information delivery, 
is Harrison Ford's ability to act as a man who is innocent, wrongly accused, but for the viewers of the movie, acting just enough sort of like offishly that like we're not <laughs> entirely convinced of his innocence. That's interesting because I, you know, when I watched the movie, there was there was that same impulse that I got, but I also was like, the movie's telling me he's innocent and I'm just kind of going with it. But there was this time in a way that I don't think I've ever felt before that kind of like seed of doubt for a moment, even though I knew where the movie was going. Uh, that was like, well, like, how, how do we know that he didn't do it? Well, and I don't know that it's, meant to be that we like are questioning his innocence the whole film but I do think there's enough of sort of a waver in that certainty because of the way he's playing this character and because of the way the film withholds information from us and also delivers information to us at very strategic moments for example Towards the end of the film, when we've already been on this journey with Dr. Richard Kimball, um, and presumably we're on his team, a very key piece of evidence is delivered to us and the marshals at the same time. And that is that Richard Kimball made a call to Sykes from his car phone right before the attack. Mm -hmm. And even if you know that Dr. Richard Kimball is innocent, you get that piece of information. You're like, what the fuck? What's going on here? Yeah. My point is just that Harrison Ford is doing a really tremendous job of, you know, playing that wrongly accused man who is determined to not only prove his innocence, but also avenge his wife. But he's not so clearly the innocent man mm-hmm. that we're we're not sort of still taken along for the ride and we can also be invested in Tommy Lee Jones's pursuit of him. Yeah. I mean, the cat and mouse stuff is, is really, really captivating. And I, I enjoy, you know, whether through careful scripting or good editing, the ways in which the movie kind of fakes you out a couple of times at key moments, right before they do that raid on the house that Copeland has escaped to the other inmate uh, Ford gets picked up uh, by a woman in a car and in the next cut there's a room of, like like the task force of the marshals saying like he was just spotted in like uh, in a car with a woman headed eastbound whatever whatever and we think for a moment that they've spotted Kimball somewhere and they like set up this big raid and this bus and we find out in those ensuing moments that it's actually Copeland that they were referring to in the previous scene. They do the same thing when he is taking refuge in the basement of like the Polish family's house where he is uh, seeing the cops kind of show up. And and for a moment you think that they, they found him until you realize that actually they're there to bust the son who's a drug dealer um, and he gets picked up. So there's all those like kind of fun moments throughout where they they give you a sense that like the marshals are actually uh, closer on his tail than they actually are, and then kind of pull back, and you realize that there's 
a lot more happening in and around here that uh, often is kind of saving his ass. Parade Master of Ceremonies, Edo Flannery, said he did not recall a more lively parade since he became involved with the event Wait, more than 20 years ago. Clothes. That Kimball, listen, is some kind of lad to be running out into the crowd like Lad? Yeah, lad. He says lad. Maybe he's a leprechaun or something. Now, hold, but hold on. No, no, listen, listen, I'm quoting this Sam, guy. Sam, there's we some guy on line three claims he's Richard Kimball. Who is it? We got another Kimball on line three. Oh, Henry, let me see that phone. Tell him he looks good in a beard. I think so. What line is it? Three. Sammy. Ask him if he, he enjoyed the He also said, parade. I hope he was able to wear a little green, <laughs> sip some whiskey, and enjoy the rest yeah, of the Yeah, this is Gerard. Do you remember what I told you in the tunnel? We ought to be sipping some whiskey. It's him, it's him. Uh, yeah, yeah, I remember, uh, well, it was noisy. I, I think you uh, said something like, um, you didn't kill your wife. Remember what you told me? I remember you were pointing my gun at me. You said... I don't care. He's on the south side. Yeah, Richard, that's right. I don't care. I'm not trying to solve a puzzle here. Well, I am trying to solve a puzzle. Five seconds of location. And I just found a big piece. Richard. Richard. We've talked a lot about how good Harrison Ford is, but I do want to spend a moment talking a little bit about Tommy Lee Jones as well. Obviously, you know, the, the big Oscar winner, the biggest performance in the movie for sure, doing the most acting out of anybody. Um, but I think that his character is really fascinating too, Sam Gerard. There is that very iconic moment again where he's confronting Kimball, Harrison Ford's character, in the dam, in the tunnel, right? And Ford gets the jump on him and gets his gun out of the water and points it at him and says, I didn't kill my wife. And Gerard responds, I don't care. And, you know, that line, that moment has been like memed to oblivion. But I still think within the context of the movie, it's so good. And it tells you so much about that character, right? Like he's not there to litigate the circumstances of, of Kimball's conviction. He's not there to hear his evidence. He's not there to decide his guilt or his innocence. He's just there to catch him. And there's like that almost like kind of like Terminator-esque presence in, in Gerard for the first part of the movie that eventually softens as he understands what Kimball is doing and more and more information is revealed. But I just love that kind of single-mindedness of it. And it's what makes that first probably half of the movie so propulsive, I think, is... That character-wise, Tommy Lee Jones is saying, I, I don't give a shit whether or not you're guilty or innocent. All I care about is doing my job, which is apprehending you and bringing you back to jail. Towards the end of the film, there's, I won't say it's a mirror image of that moment, but there's kind of a glimmer of that moment where Tommy Lee Jones's character is actually on the other side of it. Things have escalated quite a bit. And at this point in the story, um, Chicago PD now believes that Richard Kimball has killed a police officer mm -hmm. on an L train. He hasn't. It was the one-armed man, right. of course. <laughs> um, but there's, you know, this mention that Chicago PD is going to go after him and they will shoot him on sight because they now think not only has he murdered his wife, but he's a cop killer, which you really can't do. And Tommy Lee Jones is sort of arguing with 
CPD about how to handle him mm-hmm. um, as they're trying to apprehend him now that they've located that he's at this downtown Hilton in Chicago. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones is sort of advocating and saying, like, this is my man. Like, you know, you don't get to kill him. Um, and the Chicago police officer says he was convicted in a court of law. And that's all he says. Yeah. And it's this kind of callback to the damn scene when like this police officer wants to kill Richard Kimball for a multitude of reasons. And one of the reasons he is, you know, uh, he's sort of rationalizing away this desire is that he was convicted in a court of law and that's all he needs to know. Yeah. That to this, to this police officer proves this man's guilt. Mm-hmm. And it's those small, those small moments in the dialogue that I think reveal not, you know, this sort of grand commentary on institutional incompetence or uh, the ways in which these institutions that are supposed to protect us fail us. I don't, that's not really what the movie is about, mm-hmm. but those moments do reveal that the story is allowing us to question those things and leaving room for us to ponder if these institutions that are supposed to keep us safe actually function properly. Yeah. And we, you know, get the sense that again, these are just textures, just ripples in the movie that aren't actually being commented on. They're not being explored. There's no like Twitter thread monologue or anything like that. Just that you begin to question like, Oh, this is the kind of person uh, to whom being a police officer is attractive, or this is the mentality that is attractive to police officers, right? It does not matter what the details are. It doesn't matter what the actual like nuances of this situation could be. All we know is bad guy, go get him. And that's how a lot of the cops function throughout. That is really uh, ultimately like the, the arc that Tommy Lee Jones has to go through in order to become the good guy. There's kind of like that dude rock, dude's rock sort of quality to this. We never really hear explicitly that Tommy Lee Jones's character has shifted his position mm-hmm. on Richard Kimball's innocence until like literally the final scenes of the film when they are on a roof or like in some fucking boiler room having a showdown uh, along with Joe Pantoliano's character and the French doctor man. Yes. French doctor man. Yes. That is his name. Um, (laughs) So the four of them are, are in pursuit in this sort of steamy shadowed uh, boiler room um, in this hotel. And Richard is trying to, (laughs) to kill this man this French doctor man, Richard isn't coming out of the shadows and uh, Sam Gerard, Tommy Lee Jones's character finally says, I know you're innocent, Richard. And then he tells him why. And he says, I know this, this, and this. I know that you did this. And I know that this happened. And I know that these samples were switched out or whatever it may be. And he, he tells him all these things that we see convince Richard 
that Tommy Lee Jones isn't shitting him, that he really does believe that he is innocent. Right. Um, but we don't hear those words come from his lips until, you know, five minutes before the film ends. Up until that point, like the only sort of, you know, glimmers of that that we get are in like a glance he gives someone or the way he pauses between words or sort of the tone of his delivery when he's interrogating someone. But we aren't entirely sure that he is now convinced of Richard Kimball's innocence until the very end, which is another thing that's so gripping because there still is a cat and mouse chase until he comes out and says, I know you're innocent. Um, and then Richard feels safe enough to basically, you know, bludgeon the French man. <laughs> yeah, it's a good moment. And it culminates in, you know, the callback to that uh, I don't care part where Tommy Lee Jones removes the handcuffs from Harrison Ford, gives him an ice pack. Ford says, I thought you didn't care. Tommy Lee Jones responds, I don't. Don't tell anyone. It's a good moment. It's a good ending. Um, and it, I think, denies us sort of like the bombast of a different kind of movie like this where, you know, they would be ta- they, he would be taken out in front of all the cameras and, and all of the, the news reporters. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character would say something like, I pronounce you innocent or something in front of right. like all the, all the cameras, you know. That's, that's a lesser movie. I like how understated the ending of this one is. They, they take him in cuffs in the car. He finally releases him. And they just drive away off into the city. I mentioned to you that this that ending sort of made me think of Ricochet. Mm-hmm. Similarly, in that film, there's a wrongly accused man. And we're with him every step of the way as he tries to prove his innocence. And uh, ends with a really great high-intensity roof sequence. <laughs> yeah. Not unlike The Fugitive. It made me want to see the French doctor get hurled off of the balcony. Yes. Like, I think his ending is is sufficient for the movie, but there was a part of me that, like, in my memory, because we had watched Ricochet recently, thought, does he get, like, thrown off the roof? Like, is that how this ends? I wanted him impaled on a crowbar or, like, <laughs> a, what are they called? Rebar. Yeah. Rebars? Those Rebar. are the ones that, like, stick up out of, like, concrete or whatever my dad James, would be. James Very. Rebar very disappointed in me for not knowing that um similarly in ricochet denzel washington's character doesn't have a moment where like he comes you know to a news uh to a a press conference with all these reporters and says like this is what actually happened and these are the men that did me wrong and whatever and you know an article's printed up and then he's awarded like the medal of honor or the key to the city or something like none of that happens there's this really you know great uh, fight sequence on on a bunch of scaffolding, which makes me think of How To with John Wilson. <laughs> I'll never look at scaffolding the same again. And then uh, he, you know, sort of summarily shuts off the camera, the camera of our camera, what we're watching, and mm-hmm. also the camera of the um, the news channel that's that's reporting on on uh, his innocence. Mm-hmm. It's in the same vein of the rest of the film, which is that we don't need like a ton of exposition. We don't need, uh, you know, everything sort of like swaddled and spoon fed to us. Yeah, it is exactly that. It's it's just a, a smart conclusion that leaves you to 
wrap it up kind of in your mind and imagine what happens after after the closing credits. I think the last thing we should note is just like what a mark this left on like American popular culture. Oh yeah. At the time. Relentlessly parodied. Relentlessly parodied. I think of uh, Wrongfully Accused, the Leslie Nielsen movie, which was making fun of all kinds of thrillers. There's a good like couple digs at the usual suspects mm-hmm. and things like that. But the the basic layout of the movie is just parodying scenes from the fugitive yeah my favorite is the the train sequence and in wrongfully accused the train actually is pursuing leslie nielsen and like chasing him around bends and into the woods yeah it's very looney tunes it is very looney tunes uh anyway but it continue it it's yeah just a, a massive cultural footprint that phrase, it wasn't me, it was the one-armed man, is like became an idiom ostensibly. Mm-hmm. Um, Ace Ventura says it. Uh, I remember like that was a thing like we sat on the playground. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, and this movie was always on TV. Oh, yeah. I think I told you that to my knowledge, this may be the very first time I've watched this movie without commercial interruptions in it. Yeah. Yeah, which, by the way, I think would be a great way to watch it still. I, I think I even um, suggested, you know, if, if somebody wanted to uh, edit in the, like, classic TNT logo in the corner of the screen and, like, cut in some period-appropriate commercials from, like, the mid to late 90s, um, I would watch that digitally as, like, a torrent on my on my computer. I think a lot of people would watch that. Yeah, Probably. Uh, but it, it's it's just relentlessly parodied. It's it made a huge cultural impact, um, and I think second maybe only to like the Shawshank Redemption. Yes, like the the film that is the most highly syndicated and and replayed over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. It it's a remarkable movie. Um, left that imprint. Uh, one thing we didn't note that I, I'll just say really quickly, also a really good Chicago movie. Andrew Davis is a uh, Chicago native and they do a good job of finding cool little like nooks and, and very immediately identifiable places within Chicago to make it feel uh, very much like it's lived in in that city. Uh, we were remarking about the the men only hotel, which you had never seen before. And I've been alive for so many years and I did not know that those existed yeah. until two days ago (laughs) yeah uh you know nice little uh chicago flair there that they add to the movie um chicago and it's men only hotel chicago and it's men only hotel so charming very right (laughs) don't want to have to deal with all the all that that crime that all the ladies do just harboring fugitives instead so much crime (laughs) Uh, but i think that that's going to do it for us this episode uh, as always, you can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod. You can subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Shout out to our capitalist overlords. Their names are Linda and Jesse K. And we will catch you all the next time. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>